indoctrination. And Mike, what were your thoughts on our journey when we asked those questions? Well, you know, Brittany, it's 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 interesting here. I when I first wrote my book, Color Lines, uh, it was before you were born, as I understand it. <laughs> and and I and I say that because the issues that I was dealing with back then, um, as a journalist, basically looking at, you know, a mystery about how is it possible that a white police officer shot a 16-year-old black kid in the back, uh, and this police officer claiming that his own life was being threatened, and therefore he had to shoot this kid. And, and I think we're dealing with the same issues today. Uh, I mean, I think as we look at uh, the George Floyd case, uh, I, I, just was, I, I just couldn't help but think that so much of what I saw in the 1990s in Teaneck, New Jersey was echoed in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Absolutely. We're still dealing with those issues 30 years later. And we were able to really talk about that and understand that even though time has passed and it feels like we're moving forward, we still have a lot of work to do. And I'm really excited to have our panelists here to help us drive those questions farther home. We have a very distinguished group of panelists today. I'm very excited to introduce them. We have our first speaker is DeWitt Lacey a renowned Los Angeles civil rights attorney. Dewitt, it's great to have you here. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me, uh, Brittany. I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to be a part of this. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful uh, group of folks, first of all, uh, and in a very important topic uh, to me. Absolutely, course. could you share us more with, about your work? Sure, yeah. Uh, my name is Dewitt Lacey. I am uh, a civil rights attorney uh, out here on the West Coast in Los Angeles, California. Uh, a lot of the work we do, when people ask, what does civil rights mean? It means that we uh, protect people's rights as it relates to police misconduct and brutality. A lot of times uh, I represent uh, families, uh, folks who have uh, been killed uh, by police violence unnecessarily, or uh, some folks who have survived uh, uh, the violence um, and lived through it. Uh, I might represent them individually uh, and specifically as well. Uh, but we've been doing that uh, for the past, I've been doing that for the past thir 13 years. The office that I work uh, at is the law office of John Burris. That has been uh, in business for the last 45 years uh, doing this uh, type of work out here on the West Coast. Wonderful, we're excited to have you here today. Great. We also have with us, we have Marsha Kazaroshian, who is a prominent civil rights attorney as well in Massachusetts. Marsha, thank you for being here. Thank you, Brittany and Mike. This is really exciting to be part of this podcast. Yes, and you have quite a wonderful history. Would you be able to share a little bit with us about that? Well, I was going to say I'm I'm Dewitt Lacey's East Coast uh, counterpart. I'm not I'm not quite as accomplished as that, but I we do. I'm an, a trial attorney in just north of Boston. I'm a partner in the firm Casarosh and Costello LLP. We do a number of things. I do police misconduct work as well as general discrimination cases. I've had, but I've had quite a few police misconduct cases. And so I see how the perspectives have changed. Um, I'm a past president of the Mass Bar Association of the Mass Academy of Trial Attorneys. I'm a delegate to the ABA. Most recently I was appointed to the inaugural uh, Massachusetts Post Commission, which was created as part of a uh, sweeping police reform bill enacted by Governor Baker in December of 2020. 
partly in response to what was going on with the George Floyd issues. Uh, so I'm very honored to be here and to, and to learn from everyone as well as share uh, with everyone the experiences that we've had. This is a really important conversation. Absolutely. And we're very excited to get your insight. And we also have other wonderful guests with us today. We have an Emmy Award winning journalist, author, speaker, and host. We have Dr. Janice Adams. Welcome. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Um, I was just thrilled when I was asked because unfortunately, this topic is too relevant. Yes, of course. I mean, as Mike and I talked about, it is a topic that spans 30 years, even much, much longer. Well, it's year 402. Let's be honest. Yeah. You know, that's what it is. And every time people say these things take time, how long would they like it to take? This is year 402. Yes. Yeah. And the only way we can really move forward is if we ask those tough questions, the ones that we've been avoiding all of this time. Well, we're very excited to have you on today. And we also have with us Brian Gibb, who is a consultant focusing on mental health, law enforcement, and de-escalation training. Brian, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me to join the, uh, the panel. The, um, again, as you mentioned, my experience and background is in behavioral health de-escalation training. Um, for a number of years, I worked with the International Association of the Chiefs of Police, Crisis Intervention uh, Training International, to develop a, a training to teach officers how to de-escalate interactions with individuals experiencing mental illness. Um, and uh, to date have worked with, have trained over 250,000 police officers in, in similar methodologies. Um, I think that there are analogies between my work and, and the, the focus of this podcast. And so I suspect that's why um, I've been asked to join this August group. Thank you. Yes, we're very excited to get your insight because part of police reform is participating in de-escalation training. So we're grateful to have you here and be able to get that insight. And then our last speaker for today is we have Dan Keishan. Dan, welcome. Thanks, Brittany. Uh, great to be here. Great to be with this uh, very uh, established and, and distinguished group. And uh, I, I can't wait to have this conversation. This, uh, this is a great topic. And uh, I'd love to, I can't wait to share a little bit about what we've done in Camden, New Jersey. Yes, we're very excited to have you here. Dan Keishan is a public information officer with the Camden, New Jersey Police Department. Great. And we want to give a thank you to all of our listeners who are here as well. I see that there are a lot of faces. Some are hidden, some are not. You are welcome to show your face. We'd love to see you. And we'd also love to hear from you as well. So throughout our discussion, we will be taking pauses and answering any questions that people have along the way. So if you have any, please feel free to enter our Zoom chat and we will discuss those questions as we move forward. And I'm very excited to have this panel. Once again, thank you all for being here. And Mike, I think we're ready to get started. Thanks, Brittany, and, and thank everyone for joining us today. Uh, uh, I think this is a really important panel and it's also an important subject. But I'd just like to start off with what I think is a basic question that we don't ask all that much. And that is, why does violence by police against African-Americans continue to take place at the rate it takes place? I mean, from my perspective, uh, it's not like we haven't known that this is a problem, uh, as I mentioned to Brittany and as we began the show, uh, th this, the, the issues that I explored 
30 years ago are still the same issues we're facing today. But I think it comes down to a very, very fundamental uh, question. And that is, why are police killing African-Americans at the rate they are killing them at? And why do you think it takes place? I'd just like to start with DeWitt. Uh, DeWitt Lacey, what do you think about this? Uh, it's a great question, Mike. Uh, and, and I think the, the answer is really multifaceted. But look, I think it has a lot to do with our social mores, right? Uh, it wouldn't happen if our society did not tolerate it. That's just the number one truth, okay? Reasons why it's being tolerated. I mean, like I said, it's multifaceted. Uh, there are issues of racism, sure, and bigotry and discrimination, right? Uh, there are issues of class and economics that come to play in that, uh, absolutely. Uh, and even the system as it would be, you know, uh, as far as law enforcement is considered, it sometimes coddles uh, this type of behavior, uh, roughneck behavior, if you will. Uh, and sometimes the courts uh, even back it up. Uh, and the, that's not to say that they, they sanction it outright. Uh, but uh, a lot of times the judges and folks who sit on uh, the courts are, are very defense oriented uh, and very favorable to law enforcement. And so they're not really forced to change, uh, even if society has, uh, I guess, uh, some belief or desire to make even some minimal reforms. The one, the one point, though, I'm wondering about, though, is how widespread do you think the issue of just flat out racism is among police officers as they deal, you know, on, on a day to day job, how as they deal with particularly with African-American folks? Uh, look, I, I won't be the one to sit here and tell you that all police officers are racist or that even half of them are racist. I, I don't know uh, that many police officers, number one. Yeah, I would <laughs> and number two, I think that would be, uh, you know, a, a vast overreach of criticism uh, towards law enforcement and the community. But uh, I do believe, as the FBI has noted, right, that there are uh, folks, organizations, white uh, supremacist organizations that have infiltrated police departments around the nation. Uh, and I don't think that should be overlooked. What percentage of that uh, uh, equates to each uh, police department around America? I can't say, but if it's five and 10%, that's five and two, 10% too many for me. Right, right. You know, it's funny. Uh, I, I mentioned this in the podcast and I want to mention it again. As a journalist approaching this, you know, as a white journalist approaching this issue and, and really start going back to basics as best I could, I, I, I literally tried to spend a lot of time in the black community of my town to understand what was going on. And what I kept hearing about was something that sh was shocking to me. And that was the whole question of driving while black. In other words, black folks just getting pulled over again and again and again for reasons that just don't make sense. And, and I mentioned this in the podcast, since then, it doesn't, if I'm having a conversation with an African-American person, uh, it doesn't matter what I'm talking about, sports, uh, science, uh, you know, the economy, it really doesn't matter. If we're having a substantial conversation, at some point, I try to turn the conversation and ask, have you ever been stopped for reasons that don't make any sense by a police officer? And I've yet to meet uh, an African-American person, particularly a guy uh, who told me no. Everyone has a history 
of being stopped for reasons that just don't make any sense. And we're talking about some very, very powerful people. We're talking about people who are vice presidents of major corporations, big time lawyers, uh, you know, people who have actually become attorney generals of this state. And in, in the case of my state, a U.S. senator named Cory Booker, every single one has a story about this. Um, so I, I, I think that is something that that is a, a fact of life that I, I just I wonder how we're going to get past that in the future if this kind of thing continues to stop or continues the way continues the way it's going. Yeah. Dan, way, yeah. Uh, Dan, you have experience right now working with the, the police department. What are your thoughts on helping with these situations and helping cops understand when they are maybe acting towards prejudices or if they are just trying to follow protocol? Yeah, I mean, I, I think going back to Mike's original question, right, I think there's there's been, a uh, at least in our agency, a, a real transformation in regards to the culture of how we interact with the public in general, right? I mean, it, this is the city that we work in uh, and the city that we provide services for is, you know, 94% minority. So, you know, they're, they're really, you, you have to, I think, going back to Mike's, again, his original point, um, there has to be something done with use of force policy across the country with the 18,000 different police departments. Um, some of the, the most recent um, examples that we're, we're watching take place around the country. Uh, we're seeing um, individuals in, who are officers in the United States Army get pulled over, um, taken out of their car at gunpoint, for what is just a minor traffic infraction. We're seeing, unfortunately, um, you know, heinous uses of force, um, again, uh, in, a, in a minor minor traffic infraction that, that leads to death. There has to be something, and we did this three years ago, we codified policy that really, at its foundational level, was grounded in the sanctity of life, right? The sanctity of life, well, that's a term that's been used by um, for other things across this country, but really for law enforcement, it should mean that everybody goes home at night, not not just not just the police officer, not just the witness, not a not a, a resident. Everybody that we're interacting with um, goes home, and and I think um, you know in police culture that has not always been the case. I think there's. There's, there's been to a certain degree sayings and culture that, that exists that, that says that the officer is, is better off going home than going home in a coffin. So maybe maybe taking chances that, uh, that and, and acting proactively in a, in a situation that, that really um, just escalates um, what, what would be a, a, a minor conversation that, that turns deadly at the, at the drop of a hat because the culture says to rush in, don't slow things down, don't try to resolve a conflict, rush right in, try to resolve it as quickly as possible. And that's where I think we see escalation play a role and um, under very tragic circumstances uh, a lot of the time. But, you know, Mike, uh, we I was lucky enough to bring Mike down to take a look at and, and talk to some of our command staff, our command staff that has gone out and 
our training department that's talked to police departments and trained police departments across the country in de-escalation. Um, you know, I, I think we're doing something different. I think we are, we have, a, a, our, our officers are out and they're very much taking a much more guardian approach or they're, they're looking at their jobs much in the same way that uh, from a humanitarian perspective, uh, much yeah. more like peacekeepers than say, say warriors or somebody that is joining special forces. They're, they're doing their job in a way that ultimately doesn't go to, we don't, we don't ticket individuals in Camden city um, for minor traffic infractions. You know, it, not just, just some, to pick up on that, just to pick up on that yeah. real briefly here. Uh, what I was impressed with, with the Camden police department is that, that officers are actually, it's part of their job to get out of their cars and, and talk to people, not, you know, not just to hand out traffic tickets and, and only get out of their cars when they have some sort of emergency call they got to deal with. They actually have to get out of their cars and, and say hello to people. I mean, how fundamental. But we can pick up on more of that with you and, so, and what you're doing in Camden as we get on here, because I think some of the some of the techniques that you guys are using down there is, are very innovative and can be instructive for the rest of the country. Yeah. Yeah, so we talked about New Jersey in Mike's book, Color Lines, because there is some interest, uh, interesting history with New Jersey. We discussed the town Teaneck, New Jersey, which at the time of the shooting that took place was considered to be a racially harmonious town. And then that was put to question when a white police officer um, shot a black teenager. And Mike, in your story, you covered this and you asked the serious questions throughout this process. What lessons did you learn throughout your experience in Teaneck? Well, first of all, uh, I, I think the lesson I learned was to uh, get out and actually listen to people from their own perspectives. And I mean, I, I titled the book Color Lines because even though my town considered itself racially harmonious, and, and it, it actually, it, it had done some things that were quite frankly, historic. I mean, it was the first town in America to actually desegregate its schools through busing. Um, it actually made a point of marketing itself uh, in the 1930s as one of the first suburban towns to welcome Jews. It, by the 1950s, it was one of the first suburban towns to openly welcome African-Americans and other non-white folks. So it, it marketed itself as a place where people could live together and get along. And that was the big shock because we thought we had it figured out here. You know, it was one big kumbaya fest. And then suddenly all that was peeled away when this police officer shot this black teenager. And what what I decided to do as a journalist is go back to basics and start talking to people and find out what was going on in their lives. And what I found out was that underneath this, this veneer of, you know, uh, that we thought we had it together, there were some real issues, particularly in the black community that really needed to be explored. And Janice, I'm curious from a journalist perspective, because as a woman of color, I would imagine that this story would have been a different approach for you. So what steps do you think you would have taken if you had been given this story to um, look into? Well, I think the difference is that I come to it not only from professional 
standards and experience as a historian, but from life experience. And I know an incident that I lived through barely when I was on location covering uh, the town of Cairo, Illinois, and with the protest against two years after Dr. King's assassination, still not being able to properly vote. And it came to the, um, I'll just shortcut it, but the bottom line is that they were being, their voting was being suppressed, bottom line. And it was so fundamental to the town that when I was there covering it, one night, all of a sudden this hail of bullets came through the windows at every angle. We were pressed to the floor down on the ground. Fast forward, there's a lot more to that, but fast forward. And about 10 years ago, I had then just kind of taken that in and say, oh my goodness, I narrowly escaped with my life. But a friend called me because I had finally confided in someone that, that I had lived through that. And he said, I found it, Janice, I found it. And what it was, was a study that had been done by a forensic team, journalistic team out of Chicago that came down, saw the holes in the wall, and they realized that tra the trajectory of the bullets could have come from only one place. And that was the police station directly across the street from that church where we were meeting. That's who was doing it. So when I look at all of this, I say, number one, yes, America's police force is racist because America is racist. And I'm really tired of trying to play around with that and who we don't offend. As I say on the podcast, and thank you for using that, um, that clip, every time in every little area where we make a decision that is a little not as we would want it if it were projected at ourselves we are enforcing america's racism to the core and i just want to quickly read one and it is just a two-line quote so I, I won't hold you up on this but um to this point when I say, and by that I mean, even black people are trained to be racist in the United States. Now, there are different degrees. There are some that are rampant and there are some, it's almost like de facto, de facto and de jure racism. For some, it's just custom and quote, way of life. And for others, it's hardcore, it's deliberate. We have had since the very first African-American newspaper, 1827, they talked about police brutality. It's, you know, that's what the country does. So I wanna just make this, this is a quote from Carter G. Woodson. And so many of us have heard Carter G. Woodson's Miseducation of the Negro, 1933. You know, you don't have to, if, if you train somebody a certain way, they'll go in the back door without your even telling them to, to do so. And, and the statement goes on. But this was a quote that I didn't come upon until rereading the book as, as a, a, a more mature person many years later. And he's talking about the anti-lynching campaign, which is very much like 
the anti-police brutality campaigns that were going on right now. And he said, this crusade is much more important than the anti-lynching campaign. That's the crusade for black history and for knowledge about black history and culture. He says, because there would be no lynching if it did not start in the classroom. You know, Janice, that's very interesting you say that because I, I, and when I sort of dove into my own research, I tried to, I figured I had the, had done the kind of basic research that one needed to do to understand the history of race relations in America. And looking back on it today, and, I, and I'm, I'm curious as to how others feel on the panel, uh, there was nothing in the research that I did about the Tulsa riots or Tulsa massacre, as we should call it. And, and I mentioned that because so much of our of the history that I think we Americans are looking at, and I think this is very hard sometimes for white Americans to really face, that they just simply don't know how brutal this was. And when you take a look at what just happened in Tulsa, uh, I shouldn't say just happened, what, what we've just you know uh, commemorated in Tulsa, that was shocking. And, and yet our country, uh, in particular, Oklahoma and the, and the Tulsa authorities covered it up for a hundred years. Uh, May I? I'm sorry, Mike. Sure, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I just wanted to interject one thing about that. Because Tulsa was part of a whole panoply of, of these massacres and atrocities. Oh, I agree. Tulsa, I agree. Uh, but, but I just, everybody doesn't know that. It's not really an anomaly, it is a consistent pattern of atrocity in this country. And if we simply, if we don't believe that, then where are all the Native Americans who should be walking these streets in, in a majority sense, as opposed to us? This is a country that has systemically been dealing, we don't like to say it, and why should I like to say it? I mean, this is where I was born, but this is the fact. And if we don't address this fact, we will never be able to confront it. We will never be able to atone for it. We will never be able to grow from it and we will never be able to heal from it if right. we don't really deal with it. So on, I, I just wanna say that my the last thing for me um, is that I'm very concerned about this issue of what we teach in all of our classrooms and extra classrooms, including this whole conversation about training the police. You cannot train decency. And we are not screening police office, people who become police officers. We bring in every body who passes a certain whatever and on the qualifications that they have to meet. How often is it their, their mental health and attitude? Why do they feel threatened by a black person? Frankly, it goes back to slavery. It goes back to, to the fear of uprisings by a country that was not acknowledging the horrors that it was perpetrating as though everybody's just supposed to accept, oh yeah, I'm oppressed, no problem. This, so, this, this brings us to, I think, uh, our, uh, our next question, which is when we talk about police reform, my personal opinion is one of the things that we really need to drill down on is 
how do we actually train our police officers? And I'm wondering, Marsha, I wonder if you could jump in on this because you're doing some really heavy lifting in Massachusetts about certifying police. Right, um, and we've just started that work. So it, it, we're in the very beginning stages and even trying to get information about how to do it, talking about de-escalation techniques, there's very little out there to go by. Um, and we, you know, we certify, we, we decertify. This is something that our commission um, is empowered to do, but there have been so many other commissions in so many other states for so many other years and it still doesn't work. So what makes it work? I don't know. I wish I had the answer to that. And I did want to just jump off on a couple of things talking about that because as I hear what everyone has to say, from my own perspective, I, I forgot who said it, but I think you said it, Mike. We thought we had it figured out and then you had this awakening. Right, it's right. almost like what's happened in our country in the past five or six years, we thought we had so much of it figured out and all of a sudden we were faced with this underbelly of racism, societal racism that is going to permeate everything. So why wouldn't it be prevalent in police? It's just not police. It's It's got to start from the beginnings of society, not just police. And it's interesting uh, with something that Janice had said, which is, um, and I, Janice, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but you, but how do you really teach decency? Uh, to people? Um, uh, and, and I, you know, it's, it's interesting. We, we bring in police officers, you know, we make them do push-ups, we teach them how to shoot guns. Uh, you know, we make them do all kinds of physical exercise. We teach them how to engage in hand-to-hand -hand fighting and use billy clubs and all kinds of stuff like that. But, but what about teaching common decency? And, and I, you know, I, I don't know where that comes from. Some, some of us think it comes from your own, the way you were raised by your, by your folks. But on the other hand, I, I think that some of these issues that we're talking about today really come back to what Janice said, which is, what about common decency? Dewitt, I wonder if you could jump in here because there's a question that I have, and, and your, your law firm, I think, handled the Rodney King case, which was one of the first cases that we actually had video of police attacking somebody in, just, in a way that really raised some serious questions. Is the use of cell phone video today helpful in, in helping people understand how widespread this problem is? Uh, absolutely it is. I mean, uh, we don't have to look much further than to George Floyd, right? Right. Uh, if that incident had not been recorded uh, by multiple cell phone cameras, would we all be even here today in this forum uh, talking about from Philip to Floyd? Probably not. Uh, I would imagine the law enforcement narrative probably would have been that he was a big, strong guy. He was wrestling and struggling, and they had to do everything they could to hold this this. Uh, Hulk of a man down, right. uh, which is right. uh, what they uh, the defense tried to do in the, in the criminal trial for Derek, Derek Chauvin, right? Uh, so look, uh, yes, cell phone videos are helpful, right? Because it does bring to light in some regards, uh, some of the uh, disproportionate use of force that is used particularly towards African-American folks, uh, but not only the African-American folks, a lot of brown folks, Latino folks, uh, Southeast Asian and even poor white folks get this uh, a very similar treatment. Um, uh, that is not to say uh, that there's not a disparity in how often this happens to black folks, uh, because it happens 
a lot more frequently to folks who look like me. Uh, but the cell phone videos uh, definitely are helpful in approving to a jury. You know, they say uh, seeing is believing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to see that video in order to believe uh, the shocking behavior that's been described by, you know, uh, folks who've been the victim of police violence. Sometimes, you know, uh, as, as a Janice, I, I'll say Dr. Adams, okay? <laughs> as Dr. <laughs> Adams said. Um, All right, you know, Esquire. <laughs> well, well, Janice, I do want to get to you, but beforehand, we do have a couple of questions from the audience. They have been very interested in hearing all that you guys have to say, and so we've got a few questions. One of the questions is, what is a way for us to properly create change in our community? And Brian, you are an expert in de-escalation training, so what insight would you have for that question? Um, well, I, you know, I think I, I, I couldn't agree more with Dr. Adams as far as the importance of, you know, civic education and, and education about racial justice. I started my career actually as a, a high school government teacher in Alameda County in Oakland, um, uh, Hayward, um, San Leandro, um, and find myself, you know, later in my career working one-on-one -on -one with police departments surrounded by men and women in uniform, um, even though I'm not from that, that, that culture, that background. Um, but I see that there are analogies there, right? Um, the, 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 the general education of people about the Tulsa and all the other uh, atrocities that have taken place in this country is so important for everybody. But at the same time, um, we should also focus on um, giving police tools um, one of the things that that we do in our de-escalation training, because occasionally we uh, uh, run into resistance from the rank and file, I'm not going to lie about that. And so what what I always say is that my goal, which is you know uh, the goal certainly of Mr. Cation in, in Camden, is that everybody goes home safe. The idea is here's a tool, a de-escalation strategy that if this fits into your professional training of the situation that you can choose to use. So at, at worst, that officer has a, an additional tool to reach for that's not lethal. Um, and I know that sounds like cold comfort. It sounds like uh, something that's very small, um, but absent that tool, oftentimes officers will regress to, to a, a different place. Yeah, Brian, so, that's a very good that, point. That's where I'm trying to make a difference, right? Is here's yeah. the tool, um, you know, if you feel appropriate, and there's another way. There's a way to de-escalate, to, 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 to use your voice rather than your weapon. You know, that's a very, very good point, Brian. I've talked to so many cops who, who tell me, they say, well, wait, wait a second. I, I, I wear a belt full of tools. I've got my handcuffs. I got a nightstick and I've got a gun. And those tools really haven't changed all that much in, dare I say, about a century. Uh, and only now, I think we're, we're starting to bring in something what, what you know, police trainers like such as yourself are talking about de-escalation, but also critical thinking and also slowing down the moment, you know, backing off and that sort of thing, not rushing in and creating uh, a, a real uh, tense situation. Dan, I wonder if you could jump in here a little bit how are the rank and file cops in Camden embracing these new techniques? Well, I, I'll tell you, uh, fortunately for us, they're not new. Um, we've been using them now for really, I started in with the 
County in 2012, mm -hmm. uh, since May 1st, 2013, we've been using a lot of these, a lot of these de-escalation and conflict resolution techniques. Um, and they're, they're wholly embraced because I got to tell you, there's, there's not a whole, I mean, first and foremost, I mean, the, our officers, we have not had a, uh, a police involved shooting since 2017. Um, we are, you know, I, I think it's it's important for this panel to remember that Camden was one of the most violent cities in America um, per capita yeah. for a long period of time. Very and violent. ultimately, this is cultural, Mike, right? It's, it's the culture of the department. So we start in the academy, we bring it into agency training, and then we train officers every day. So there's a continuity that I don't think is prevalent in other police departments. So there's 18,000 police departments throughout the country and 467 just in the state of New Jersey. Um, we, we are consistently reinforcing that continuity of training and always reminding from roll call um, every day to supervisors and mentors on the street that this, this is something De-escalation is something we want to do um, when we are faced with situations that come about or incidents, violent incidents. And we want to make sure that use of force is always a last resort, right? Uh, Dan, t t tell, the, tell our audience, uh, there was a very interesting incident in, uh, the, in Camden. I, I don't know how many years ago it was where a, a guy was out on the street he was having a really bad day and he had a knife and he was threatening people. And instead of rushing in and shooting the guy as the police, the police department did in Philadelphia across the river from you guys just a few months ago, how did Camden handle that case? It was very interesting. Tell, describe it to us. Yeah, sure, yeah. So, so we, we, uh, we get a call about a, a man with a knife threatening uh, diners inside of a restaurant in Camden. And um, Basically, I, I would equate this to the Tamir Rice shooting, unfortunately, is where officers rushed right in, uh, pulled up within three to four feet of Tamir Rice and shot him and lethally and, and tragically killed him. Um, and and these officers, they went in, they formed a bubble around this individual. Um, he left the restaurant, did not did not hurt anybody. And they they walked him um they walked him about three blocks down a main thoroughfare in the city. Three, three blocks. Yeah, three, three blocks, blocks. Wow. Down, a, down a main thoroughfare. And ultimately he he grew tired and they were able to take him into custody. And and the thing about that that incident, the thing about that suspect at the time, that was an individual who was not who was who was not there to he, he was having a behavioral health breakdown. Um, he was in crisis and we got him to a crisis center and he was never charged with a crime and he got the help that he needed to get back on his feet. But, you know, we've seen so many of those incidents go terribly wrong throughout the country where lethal force is used and uh, a, a mother, a son, an aunt, an uncle and a grandfather or, or such, it is, such as it is, is now lost, um, has lost a loved one. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying and listen. We're not perfect by any means, right? It, it, law enforcement in general is a human human product and their humans are, are flawed. Uh, but I think we're doing a, I think we're doing something good. I think we're doing, a, you know, President Obama was in Camden in 2015 and held us up as a model for the nation and some of the tactics and strategies that we use on an everyday basis. 
And, and quite frankly, you know, we've seen what going out and kicking in doors and arresting, you know, mass incarceration and what that has done to communities, what it, what it did to, to Camden prior to us um, re-engineering and, and starting our own police department. Um, it doesn't do anything to stop crime. I mean, I, despite what people say, um, it, it, it really, mass incarceration does nothing but exasperate every issue that a municipality or jurisdiction is going through. You, um, and you, just, and you've had, let's, let's point out here, you've had a drop in crime uh, once you started changing your tactics, correct? We are at 50 year lows for um, violent crime across the board. Wow. That's great. And we do have a question from our listeners, which I think would be interesting to continue this conversation. We have a question that is why are police who are accused of misconduct and brutality in one jurisdiction still allowed to be hired in other jurisdictions? Oh boy, that's a good question. That's a great okay. question. Can I just make make a quick comment? Um, because unfortunately I have to leave and, and I don't want to just walk away and shut down. Um, but to the question that was just asked, right before the show, I read the uh, George Floyd Policing Act. And it has in it provisions to, to cover that, you know, so it, this should be a, a national registry. So one person can't go to another district and, you know, just say I'm perfect and, and they're accepted. But I want to make a just, just a, a another comment. So often when we have these situations of police brutality, and I really don't like racial profiling because that's another softening of what is really going on here. And I think we have to speak to these things very directly. Um, we often conflate it also economically. And I wanna say that as a dark skinned black person, I actually have never lived in a quote, inner city zip code. And yet my son and daughter have been stopped because they are driving a car. If uh, it, in, in certain areas, if a black person is driving a rotten car, they're stopped because they don't belong. If they're driving a nice car, they're stopped because where did you get that? In fact, that was an element of the George Floyd trial that was really, really just downright racist in which the defense attorney kept hammering on the fact that George Floyd was not in a car, but was in a Mercedes Benz, mm -hmm. which went to the old standard point of how dare you think you can have that car. And in these right. neighborhoods you get from the police, how dare you think you can live in a neighborhood that I can't live in. Yeah. How dare you think it? So we are really talking about this systemic pathology in our society that if we don't address and, and to just, you know, one thing to think, I think about. Janice, there's one other question though, I think that- Can, can I just make this one point sure, though, sure, Mike, please? Ahead. I wanted to add, one I wanted thing to piggyback. think about. We all talk about Rosa Parks keeping her seat and why and how did this happen? But we never ask the question, why did that man want her seat in the first place? You know, it's interesting. Um, and it's time for us to shift this conversation onto the perpetrators. 
Why do they need to be perpetrators in the first place? Why does this society need racism? And it does. That's the real issue. Not tweaking around the edges. That's the issue. I'm I also sorry, think there's a, I don't think there's a, just piggyback on what you're saying. I think there's an issue of ability. One of the, one of the most profound statements that anybody made was researching the issue in Teaneck, New Jersey. Somebody said to me that many institutions changed in Teaneck, New Jersey because of its desire to be inclusive and build a racially harmonious town. Uh, the, the change, the school system changed, the business community changed, the religious community changed. There's one institution that did not change and that was the police. And a uh, big question of just sort of opening the doors to these places and, and, and asking people to be accountable. That's where I think some of the work in Camden is so important uh, uh, right now. But I just wanted to ask Marsha, because you're, Marsha, you're dealing with this issue of certification of police. And, the, and Janice asked the question about uh, how do we, how do we, how do cops go from, from one town to the end if they have problems, you need to get hired. Uh, how is that working out in Massachusetts as you're trying to well, certify? Well, we've only police? been around for the last couple of months, but I can just tell you in general, even from my own experience doing police misconduct cases, there's no transparency in anything when it comes to police discipline. Don't have a, a in Massachusetts statewide. It's very. It's been years right. until we started lists of officers who had been disciplined, officers who had been suspended, officers uh, any you know lists of people who had been. Um, accused of uh, excessive force. Without that, you can't educate. So if you don't have the information to educate or the other police officers, you're never going to get to that point. Historically, it's been, a, it's almost like a closely yeah. held secret. I think what we're seeing now is people are opening up, people are understanding the need for education. And if you don't have transparency, you're not going to get educated. I think that's very, very important, but this is going to keep happening until someone puts their foot down and says, this is not a secret. This is not a wall, a blue wall that we have to protect everyone with. We're in this together. Talk about uh, police officers going in in Camden, for example, or, or Teaneck, where they go in and you meet the community that you're in. You start to understand them. They start to understand you. It's a partnership, but you don't get there without some mutual trust. You don't have mutual trust without sharing information, being transparent and educating. It's just not. But, I, but I, also think, I also think it's a question of weeding out people who are problematic. I mean, we do this in all professions. We do it in my profession in, in journalism. We do it in the law. We do it in, uh, you know, in medicine and, 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 and in education. If, if an officer is having a problem, Maybe he or she is not cut out to be a cop. And that's what I found in my own case, researching my book, in that, that the officer who shot Philip Pinnell, that was his fourth shooting in five years. And the other three shootings all were questionable shootings. He, he hadn't killed anybody, so therefore didn't rise to the surface as being a, something that the, that the town government would have to look at. But, the, but he was firing his gun in ways that a lot of other officers told me 
were highly, highly questionable. And yet the police department did not, uh, you know, sit him down and say, listen, we don't think you should be a cop or well, we don't think you should be, should be a cop on the street. You know, maybe he'd be a better, maybe he'd be a better detective or a better, you know, uh, headquarters type officer, but a cop on the street answering emergencies. I think that's, that may not, you know, some police officers are just not cut out for that. And we but don't have a system now for- don't I'm you sorry, rely what? on the department to report that? You rely on the department right. to ensure against it? You rely, when I have a case of police misconduct, one of the hardest things I have to show in order to get a, a town um, responsible for the actions of the police officer is I have to show that there's some pattern mm -hmm. by this police officer that's known to everyone or that the town turns much more than a blind eye or recklessly turns their back or nurtures the culture and all of that is a big secret. You, it is the hardest bit of information to try to pull together. It's very closely guided. And I think there has to be a, a culture of this information. Knowledge is power. And if, and if everyone has the knowledge, we're gonna be able to work together much better than holding it so that you keep protecting inadvertently maybe. Maybe it's an unintended consequence, but you keep these people who don't belong there, they're still there because they have to protect everybody. That's yeah. their mindset. Can and I that's, you back. that's why we're here today is we're here for the main topic of discussing police reform, especially as we move forward, like Janice said, and I think she just left, but if she still hears me or if she's still able to see the chat, Janice, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate you having, uh, we're having, we appreciate you being here. And so I do wanna move forward with the further discussion as she mentioned with the, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, because that is the main reason why we're all here today. But that does cover a lot of topics in that one act. And I think it would be really helpful to be a little bit more specific um, for our panelists and just discussing what key differences will that act create and what positive change and maybe potentially some negative change um, will the act do for the police reform? Uh, if, if, if I can, I wanna piggyback on uh, some of what Marshall was saying to kind of parlay into this question here, Brittany. Uh, look, one of the things, and I think the key elements in the George Floyd and Policing Act is addressing the issue of qualified immunity, all right? Listen, folks, what everybody needs to understand is that qualified immunity, there's no constitutional or statutory right to this. This judicial, it's a judicially created doctrine, right? Out of this cognitive dissonance uh, that we've all been talking about, the need to protect police, right? So much so. Do it. Could you just t uh, define briefly what uh, qualified immunity is for our listeners? They may not understand that term. Absolutely. I, I, I was going there. Uh, and I, I, I apologize for being loquacious. <laughs> <That's all right>. <laughs> <laughs> You're a good attorney. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, uh, listen, qualified immunity is the idea that if there is a happening uh, uh, or an instance where an officer uses force uh, and it hasn't been uh, argued before uh, by the appellate courts or the Supreme Courts, um, and it's not the same uh, almost exact type of factual issues that the officer will be immune from suit, right? Uh, for example, there certainly would be uh, arguments uh, that the defense would make, the defense of an officer in the George Floyd case, uh, that they should be entitled to qualified immunity because maybe there's not in that district um, any real uh, um, uh, precedent, legal precedent, uh, which shows that uh, positional asphyxia 
is a problem and uh, uh, is a violation of uh, George Floyd's Fourth Amendment rights. Right. And a lot of times that turns out uh, to be where the officer or law enforcement is protected. And it kind of speaks to, uh, if I can tie this all in together, Dan and, and Brian, some of the objections that you all have talked about, right? Uh, that the he-man and macho culture of Rambo, we're going to rush in and do things uh, uh, right away. Uh, and we're not really going to follow the protocol and training that does exist. Uh, I agree with you, Dan. This training has existed for some time in many police departments, especially in California. Uh, but they're not encouraged to follow that because uh, I think of issues like qualified immunity uh, and then cities, municipalities, states understand, well, we can just let it go ahead because there's not going to be any real consequence to it uh, other than, you know, these pesky civil rights attorneys like Marsh and DeWitt who want to sue us for no good reason. Well, right? so in other words, if you can't charge a guy with a crime, a, a police officer with a crime, as they did in Minneapolis, that you, DeWitt or Marsh, you can't file a lawsuit against them. Is that what you're talking about here? You, yes, you can file a lawsuit, but it'll be dismissed. Right, right, right. Unless you have a case that has almost the exact same facts and that you can show that that police officer was aware of it and had noticed that his actual actions were in violation of the constitution. And the other problem with that is even when you have cases that are similar, the courts are very reluctant to then say, make a precedent by saying, okay, now you're all on notice. When you put your knee on the neck of a um, African-American man for nine plus seconds, you're depriving that person of his constitutional rights. You're going to be responsible. They don't. They don't do that. They're very uh, hesitant to do that. So that's one of the other huge flaws with qualified immunity. Wow, wow. Brian, what do you think about the uh, the George Floyd Policing Justice and Policing Act? Do you think that that the passage of that could help uh, with the process of national police reform? I I'm not an expert on the the legislation, but I do know that there is, you know, funding for training and not, not to, to uh, um, beat the same drum over and over again, but um, I do think that that is a component, you know, of it. And, you know, I, I also want to, to focus on, you know, I'm not trying to be apologist for, for bad apples that we've identified. Mike, you've done a good job of identifying individuals who were problems in their department. But I think we also need to also focus on departments who have been successful too, and, and try to, as we demand accountability as we should, we also hold up those who are making progress. And, and one of the things that has been inspiring to me Absolutely. in the 10 years that I've been working on this is seeing departments who are progressive. People like Lou De Deckmar in um, LaGrange, Georgia, who has been recognized by the NAACP um, for his work in, in his small community and then his work nationally in that area. You know, Dan, of course, in Camden, New Jersey, um, I worked closely with Albuquerque, New Mexico, where ha that had a, a really negative uh, reputation um, and has really become, um, has held up as far as the progress that they've made. So um, I do want to, to recognize that, but also, you know, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't have accountability, absolutely. And, and um, we shouldn't address these problems. And I guess I'm one of the people uh, that, um, that the doctor said earlier is kind of picking around the edges, right? I'm, I'm, I'm the, the training guy, right? This kind of picking around the edges. Um, and, but as long as we're all focusing on different aspects of this problem, I'm hoping that we can move forward, right? If, you know, 
Dan and I work on training and working with, in, with police departments, you know, and, 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 and Mr. Lacey, uh, you work on accountability and, and you know, Mr. Ms. Carzion in, in, in um, Massachusetts do the same. And Mike, you keep doing the good work that you're doing and in, in, in educating all of us to the, the history of this. And, you know, and the doctor who's not, not with us here today, um, you know, talks about the passionate 402 years of, mm. of, um, of, uh, of our history. I think if we all kind of pick at different parts of this, I think we can make progress. And yeah. that to me is inspiring. Yes, and um, I do want to stop for a moment and just say thank you to all of our panelists. You have been answering all of our questions so beautifully and thank you for interacting with our listeners. Um, we've been receiving a lot of great questions from everybody. We are going to just answer one more question from a listener and then we are going to wrap up for today's discussion. We do have a great question from one of our listeners. It is, what are your thoughts on defunding the police? Uh, you want me to take a crack at it? I, I saw that question come up. I will, I will take a crack at it. Look, we need police, no doubt about it, okay? They're an essential part of any government. Uh, there's not any black community that I know of that doesn't want police to exist. They just want them to, to exist in a fair and non-racist way, okay? Uh, we all want police and we all know that we have to have them. So I think the idea of totally defunding the police or eliminating police, uh, I, I, I think that's probably, uh, I, I know the critique has been, it's been poorly phrased, but I don't think anybody really means that. I think what that means is to have more efforts like those of yours, Brian, in retraining folks and making sure that they understand proper de-escalation techniques. I think uh, it means that instead of putting upon the backs of officers uh, who are meant to respond to you know, uh, certain situations, uh, circumstances like the ones you spoke about, uh, Dan, where they had to de-escalate this individual who had a knife outside of this uh, um, I, don't, I don't know what it was, a, a, a counter. Uh, it was a restaurant. Yeah, he was a inside re a restaurant. And we walked him out. Yep. Yeah, uh, but walked him out and took the time, right? A lot of yep. officers, especially because of the He-Man culture, right, and macho culture, don't necessarily have that training. And I think maybe what we need to ask is, is it fair to put that on officers or should we just have other people respond to those type of situations? And I think that's what kind of defunding the police gets at. Well, I also think it's a, I also think it's a matter of duet of, of, of continually assessing who is good at this role. I mean, for example, I mean, we train pilots uh, and, and we train, uh, you know, some of the best uh, soldiers in our armed forces and, you know, only certain types of people get to certain levels of, you know, where, where they have a certain level of expertise, the rest are weeded out. And I think sometimes we have to apply some of those very, very stringent standards to the police departments. Uh, you know, not every police officer is, in my opinion, equipped to handle emergencies. They're just not emotionally equipped. They're, they may, as I said, they've been, they may be very good detectives or headquarters records people, but they're not good on the street. And I think we need to start looking at who we put on the street and, and the kinds of work that they do and, and also give them the, the additional tools that Brian and Dan are talking about. I, if I could just jump in for sure. a moment. I think we have to start getting away from thinking of 
our law enforcement or police departments as military branches of the government and training. Oh, that's a that's a great point, Marsha. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think, and this is going to sound crazy, but I watched this show, it's called The Rookie, and there was one little episode in there when there was a, a woman who had come back from, I think it was Iraq, I can't remember, she was in the armed forces, and approaching policing as if it was a military assignment. Yes. And there was, and it was so interesting to me the way they talked, they dealt with this rookie or cadet or whatever you want to call her and tried to explain this is a different mindset the, the community is not your enemy you're here for a different purpose this is not a military operation and i think we have to start moving away from that in our education you know it's a great point marcia as part of my research i decided to go to the police academy and i took the deadly force test i, I flunked it by the way um <laughs> the um um but i was shocked shocked at how the police recruits resembled military recruits. They shave their heads. They have to stand at attention when other officers pass by. Uh, you know, they're told to, you know, do push-ups as punishment. In other words, it's almost like a Marine Corps boot camp. And I thought to myself, my goodness, these guys are not being trained to attack the enemy. They're supposedly trained to protect us. And this is the, this is the wrong kind of mindset. Uh, and I think I, I'm hoping that there is a real reassessment of how we train police officers. And I'm glad to hear that there's some money in the George Floyd Act for you know, training. And I, I really hope that some people take control there and really take a look at the militarization of police forces. If, if I can quickly, uh, yeah, uh, Mike, and just to address an issue, uh, Dan, you know, we spoke yeah. of this example uh, of you know, a, a fella who was outside of the, the restaurant or the diner or was in there actually with a knife, I guess, at one mm -hmm. point. Uh, was, was this individual an African-American or a black person? So he, he was African-American. Um, and uh, ultimately, I think, you know, he was just to paint a completely transparent picture here. He was he had a knife. He was threatening the um, the gentleman at the counter and then different diners when officers arrived. Um, they were able to, you know, at least get him out outside. It, it was a very, I, I will tell you, um, it was a very tense situation. It was a, a sure. situation that they could have gone sideways uh, very quickly. And I, I truly believe probably 10 years ago, um, prior to uh, prior to the county standing up a, a police department, it probably would have that that individual, unfortunately, would have been uh, shot dead, um, in, in, probably inside the restaurant, if I had to guess. Thank you, Dan, for continuing to help out with that and make clarity of that, because I know that's been a big topic for us today. But we are um, towards our last few minutes of the discussion. Um, this has been a really great experience. I know a lot of our listeners have um, had some great questions, and they seem to be very happy with what's been going on. And so as we just wrap up, I just want to ask each panelist to say on their final thoughts, because when Mike and I were discussing color lines, the big Thing that we kept bringing up was that yes there is a generation gap in the sense that this is we talked about a situation that happened back in the 90s and yet we're still talking about it in 2021 so to make sure that we don't have to have the same conversation in another 30 years i would just like to get one final thought from each speaker on what do you think is a great way for us to create change uh, I'll say, uh, I think what we're doing right now is part of it. Uh, um, I think a big part of it is education, right? 
um, there is a cognitive dissonance I think that America has uh, about policing, especially policing in African-American or, or, or uh, black communities uh, and how it affects us, right? Uh, and whether or not we're gonna do something about it. Uh, like you said, I mean, you said, Brady, we've been talking about this since the 90s. I could pull up videos uh, from the 60s uh, uh, where mm -hmm. folks are talking about this. I'm sure there are uh, issues that this was been talking about in the 1800s as well. So it, it's not a new topic. And that's why I say there's kind of a cognitive dissonance uh, because we pretend that it's, well, it's, you know, it's for the last 20 years. No, it's been for a very long time. Uh, and we have to acknowledge the truth of that. Uh, and in doing so, I think that empowers us to make the change uh, that we've seen in some places around the country, uh, but it needs to be more widespread. Absolutely. And Marsha, your final thoughts? Well, I think people have to learn how to educate others in different ways. And I've, I think I raised this before at some point, but um, we've had 30 years of law and order from the, from the prosecutor side, from the police side, and that is a culture that we've grown up with. And I think it's very important to note, and I think I believe it's still uh, green. It's it's been greenlighted that Dick Wolf now, who does those Law and Order um, series, has now done one for the defense. So it's a different perspective. And I honestly think this is the way you start training. This is where people get their information. This is how they like to learn. This is how they like to interact. When you start teaching them that there are other ways, other perspectives, it's not just um, the ends justify the means for the prosecutors or the police. Now you're looking at it in your entertainment forum on TV and a television series where you're looking at it for the defense. And I think that is a huge step. I don't think we would have seen that five or 10 years ago. Absolutely. Thank you, Marcia. And Brian? I'm muted. Sorry. Um, uh, first off, you know, I, I mentioned that I started my career as a high school government teacher in California, and um, I too believe that this kind of discussion needs to happen much earlier on in an individual's education. Um, and so, I can, if I, you know, go back, could go back in time, I would have, you know, invite you all to my classroom. Um, I would um, have this podcast as part of the curriculum. Um, I would have these issues discussed. They're tough issues, but my students can handle these issues and they, they have to handle these issues. And so absolutely would focus on that. Um, and, you know, and then later on where we need to add training and tools, we can, but, but I do agree with the doctor from previously that this has to happen more broadly and earlier. Yes, of course. And again, Dr. Janice, thank you for being with us. And Dan, your final thoughts. Well, I guess first and foremost, I just want to applaud you guys for, for putting this on today. It was a great panel. I'm really, uh, really excited to be part of it. And I, I think the conversation, I, I think we, we've really just, we're, we're, we're kind of scratching the surface. There's so much more that I, I would love to talk about on, on defund the police and police accountability. And, and I think, um, you know, Mike, I, I want to give a, a shout out right now. We just had the attorney general down to uh, our place. I think the state of New Jersey is going to lead the country over the uh, over the next couple of years in regards to progressive police reform. Um, and that, that's everything from de-escalation to account uh, officer accountability. So um, I hope we can do it again. Uh, this was great. And uh, and thanks so much for having me. Yes, thank you. And Mike, once again, thank you.
for being here. It's been a pleasure working with you again. Thank you, Brittany. It's, it's been a delight and a real pleasure and an honor working with you. And, and thank you to everyone. And uh, uh, I'm, amazing, Dan. Could New Jersey actually lead the way on something? <laughs> yeah. <all right. laughs> that would be amazing. I know. I, we'll see. We'll see. And yes, we do want to thank our listeners for tuning in. We appreciate all of your questions and appreciate all of your insight. For those of you who have not listened to our podcast, Color Lines from Philip to Floyd, it is available on our website at upwardmediapartners.com. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Audible, and Spotify. And once again, thank you guys so much for helping us move forward to create change in our society. I'm Brittany Hanrahan with Upward Media Partners, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.